Hello and welcome to another Perpetual Outsider podcast. My name is John Bensalia. Um, welcome to uh, any new listeners. And if you, uh, by some miracle, <laughs> um, have come have come to join me again after the uh, the last couple of commentaries, which are also available, The Deadly Assassin and One About the Generation Game, then uh, welcome back. Glad you could join me again. Now, today I'm looking at uh, uh, quite a timely Doctor Who story, actually, because um, this story is now being released on Blu-ray. But being the Luddite I am, and the cheapskate that I am, I am watching this story on good old-fashioned DVD. I don't think I'll ever get a Blu-ray, to be honest. I just don't have the money, he says, begging. So, today's story is called Revelation of the Daleks, which was... The last story of season 22, um, it stars Colin Baker and Nicola Bryant from uh, 1985. So if you're ready, I am, then uh, if you hit play in five, four, three, two, one, here we go. That was a lot longer than 54321, by the way, I'm afraid. Sorry. Oh, here we go. God. Maybe there's something to be said for Blu-ray. I don't know, because the DVD play just got really slow. I love these titles. I still love that theme arrangement. <laughs> still my favourite, I'm afraid. There's just something about that funky disco kind of arrangement of it, which just... I don't know. I, lo I, I love this. I love this version of the theme tune. So, Revelation of the Daleks. What do I remember about Revelation of the Daleks? Well, I, uh, unfortunately, I'm, I can say that I'm old enough to have caught the original broadcast when it went out in March 1985. This was March 23rd. Um, yeah, I, I, I remember I was still into Doctor Who. Um, you know, I, I really become what you call a fan by this point. Um, you know, I, I would collect the books and the magazines and everything, you know, and all, all of that and the annuals and that sort of thing. And I, I remember watching it and just being really, I, I really enjoyed it. You know, and I still, I still enjoy it a hell of a lot, actually. It's, it's a great, great story and probably my favourite Colin Baker story, I think. And I think one of the reasons... That I, that I really enjoyed it was because I read a preview of it in the Doctor Who magazine. They had a thing called Gallifrey Guardian. I'm not sure if they still do it actually in the Doctor Who magazine. It's been a long time since I've uh, since I've seen it uh, since I've read it. Excuse me. And um, but they, they, it, the um, the blurb for Revelation of the Daleks sounded really interesting. Um, partly because of the cast and partly because of the whole premise of it, which just sounded really intriguing. You know, the Doctor and Perry visit this uh, this strange kind of funeral funeral home, you know, where the, where the Daleks are somehow involved. And it just sounded really weird and quirky. And it still is. It's such an unusual concept for the Doctor to um, just to, to get involved in this really strange adventure where the Daleks are enmeshed in this funeral home. And it plays out as this uh, as this wonderful black comedy, really, which it mixes black comedy with drama, and it's right up my street, Doctor Who. It's it's funny and it's dramatic, and it's of course it's directed with real verve by Graham Harper, 
one of the all-time great Doctor uh, Doctor Who directors, I think. Um, so much, uh, so much so that I'm uh, babbling all over the action, which, <laughs> which is which is unfolding now. Um, the, doc, the Doctor and Perry, uh, Perry's just thrown a nut roast roll and into the lake, and uh, the Doctor's not looking very happy about being insulted about his nut roast rolls. I could just picture them, you know, I can just picture the Doctor, you know, mixing together the, you know, the, the basic dough for his nut roast rolls and think, oh, it's going to be brilliant. He's probably a great, he'd probably make a great contender for MasterChef, actually. You know, he, he'd probably get through with his, with his Gallifrey cuisine. But they do seem to like going on about dinner a lot because Perry goes on about um, vengeance on Varos, how the Doctor burned dinner the previous night. Um, and she said it was meant to be a cold supper. Ah, so here we are with um, uh, Tranquil Repos. This, uh, this creepy funeral home with uh, Clive Swift in a very obvious wig. <laughs> this is a wonderful tracking shot already. You've, you, you know, the camera's slowly pulling away and revealing the full splendour of that wonderful set designed by Alan, Alan Spaulding, I think it is, did the design for this. That, you know, it's just one of the many wonderful di directorial touches that Graham Harper gives this. And also the cast he's, br he's bringing to life. I mean, we'll, we'll go through them, you know, as, as they as they appear, but Clive Swift, I think he's wonderful as Jebel. I, th I think he's just so, he's just right for the role. Just right, you know, he's, he's so opinionated and pompous and fussy and, uh, and I'm not talking about that Doctor Who uh, magazine interview he gave an effect. I think you're back to 2007. Uh, for those of you who've never read, he's just uh, very strange. But uh, no, he's 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 wonderful here. I think. You know, um, Jenny Thomas in there is Tassenbeek, um, maybe the only weak link in the cast. But having said that, is she meant to be playing this rather kind of awkward? inept character if so then hats off to her because she's she portrays it to a team snowy wastes of necros score of course by roger lynn's wonderful graham harper pretty much assembled the same team as he did with uh, with caves of androzani you see he's got the same uh, film crew i think it's i think it's john walker it's the camera work it's really good really filmic great stuff see this is nice um the relationship between the doctor and perry it's um to be honest it's not the not the best one because there's this very strange kind of um if they keep arguing all the time i, I don't really know why and by the end of the story, they're kind of friends again, like in the two doctors, you know, they, they walk off arm in arm at the end of that. And then in the beginning of the next story, Time Lash, they're arguing again. But the, this is a good one for them, I think, actually, having said that. They, um, they, there's more of a, you know, there's less bickering and there's more of a, you know, a, a friendship starting to come through, I think. Which is really what it should have been from the beginning, you know. And I'm, I'm certainly not blaming Colin Baker or Nicola Bryant, who I think do a superb job with their characters. I, I think Colin Stockshaw, I think in particular, is massively underrated, and I think he deserves so, so 
much more than what he got. I, I really do. But I think really it's the scripting that let them down. And I think probably Eric Saywood's decision to have the doctor and Perry argue a lot, you know. There was always a lot of argy bargy in the TARDIS in the eight in the early eight, early to mid eighties. And I don't really know why. You know, why should you know traveling aboard the TARDIS not be a fun experience? But you know, you had Tegan um arguing with a doctor, you had Turlow being all shifty. Adric being a brat, and then Six Doctor and Perry, you know, frequently arguing with all the TARDIS, which is not not a great dynamic, really. Not really a very good choice. Perry's getting in her first kill there with a mutant. Played by Ken Barker. Good makeup for that, actually. And oh, here we go with uh, the DJ, played by Alexi Sale. It's a character that shouldn't really work, and yet it does. I think it works brilliantly. I, th I think he works especially well in, in part two. We'll, you know, we'll talk more about that. Um, the, cast, uh, the casting for the DJs is interesting because um, I read in the Doctor Who 1980s book, which I think they brought out you know, a decade later. They had a long list of possible candidates to play the DJ. And off the top of my head, I think they were thinking of People like Jasper Carrot, Robert Lindsay, um, a couple of pop stars. I think David Bowie was in there. Um, Phil Collins, which really would have been the, <laughs> the genesis of the Daleks. You know, it would have been genesis of the Daleks too, I think. But I think Alexi Sale, I think, I think there's a grand job with it. Not an easy, not an easy role to play at all. These two are also good. They kind of get overlooked a bit. Um, Natasha and Grigory, who are on the hunt for Natasha's father, um, or you know her, you know her father's you know remains. But uh, of course, of course, she gets a terrible shot with that. But uh, yeah, they're, they're good. You know, they're, they're one of many double acts. I think Eric Saywood is has latched onto what his uh, his kind of mentor, what Holmes used to do. You know. And this is peppered with double acts. You've got Natasha and Grigory, Takis and Lewitz, um, Cara and Vogel, um, Orsini and Bostock, you know, peppered with, of course, a Doctor of Perry. You know, so you, you've got at least five double acts in this, you know. I suppose to a degree, Davros and uh, Tass and Beaker, to a point. And he's Davros and he's in his little uh, swivel chair. Not an easy job for Terry Malloy having to be strapped. Uh, he was apparently literally strapped to a chair like one of those office chairs that you get um, with his knee and he had to kneel the whole way through and you know there'd be this and he would literally swivel around on his office chair which is how you get that effect with the, the disembodied dabble's head in the in the great big fish tank it, it looks like a kitchen blender actually i mean the one you know he's probably off the car road to get all these um, kind of necros fruit that he can put in his uh, in his uh, blender and uh, have, a, have a quick milkshake without having to you know, go for a glass or anything. Good bit of doctorish compassion here from Colin's doctor. I, I think it's a shame in the original run, he, he wasn't really allowed to show that level of, you know, kind of compassion. I think he, they were looking for a deliberate contrast to Peter Davidson's doctor, who was a lot more kind of, uh, you know, mellow and easygoing. And then you, you get this quite brash, um, you know, self-confident doctor i think with with colin's incarnation 
this is a good mix because you know the, the way he says you know you had no choice in killing the mutant to Perry. I think that's quite a you know sort of a it's the sort of thing that Tom's Doctor would have said actually. You know it's, it's quite alien and and you know done very well. Not sure about the Dalek voices in this. They're a bit strange. But then, but then you know, it, it goes with, um, you know, the, the later revelation of, you know, where the, the Dalek's origin in the story. I really hope my DVD copy doesn't stick because when I've played it in the past, because this is a, like a tracking shot which goes from down past the floors, and for some reason it keeps getting stuck. So I'm keeping everything crossed. <laughs> but I don't have to get up and start... Um, Start the recording all over again because that'd be a real pain. Uh, is it okay? Is it going to be okay? Please be kind. Yes, yes, it's okay. Thank God. I think the trick to it was to switch the CG because you can watch it with CGI effects on this on this version. But for whatever reason, uh, um, before I I hadn't actually um, switched that option off. And if you do that, then it doesn't get stuck. So. Uh, Of course, you know, as I said before, you can actually watch this on Blu-ray. Excuse me, just squinting down some coffee here. And um, you can actually watch this on, um, yeah, Blu-ray option. Um, but uh, unfo unfortunately, I've, I've never really, you know, I, I think there are only so many special features that you can take in your own lifetime. And when, you know, when you're a busy, uh, when you're a busy husband and father with two uh, two daughters, you haven't really got enough time to actually sit around and watch special features all day. <laughs> um, that, that's not a that's not a brilliant bit of acting, actually, um, from Jenny Thompson. For intruders, <laughs> there's a deleted scene on there on the on the extras actually, which is which is an extended version of that scene. And it's really cringing. Uh, it's, it, she says, Shut up! It's a, it's a little bit like um, she's channeling Windsor Davis in um, in Eight Half Hotman when he says, Shut up! At the end at the end of the show. Um, but she just says it really a, a little bit Andran. Dare I say it, I, I should be nasty. It's not easy to not easy to act. But this certainly isn't an easy thing to do with uh, Lexi Sales DJ in his in his 1950s rock and roll gear and the shades and the leather jacket. Interesting use of uh, stock music in this because you've got, um, yeah, good vibrations for the Beach Boys. You've got Jailhouse Rock here. Um, and you would get Jimi Hendrix uh, Fire, but of course the copyright issues uh, mean that you've got a generic piece of uh, rock music instead later on. Um, I'm, I'm not. I'm not actually sure if you, if they've reinstated it for the Blu-ray. But um, if you have, then uh, if you've got the Blu-ray and you've got it, then uh, hats off to you. Yeah, these, these two are good. Um, Takis and Takis and Lilt, who I always Lilt, I always think should be wearing like a. JNT Hawaiian shirt and sombrero because of the drink. But they're good, yeah. Um, yeah, Trevor Cooper, I think, plays 
uh, Takis and calling Sport Plays Lil, and both will be back in um, in the Monday Doctor Who. Chen Cooper will be in Robot of Sherwood, and Colin Spall will be in the Rise of the Cybermen as Mr. Crane, also directed by Graham Harper. There's Kara, played by Eleanor Brom. Um, Kara apparently named after a spud, of all things. I seem to remember on the um, of the original DVD commentary with Eric Sayward. And apparently he'd been on a holiday and he'd also read a, a book, I think, by, I want to say, Oberon War. And there were various things to do with his holiday and... Uh, and this book being read that kind of influenced uh, this story. And uh, Cara, yeah, was named after a local potato, I think, from what I remember. Spud. Maybe they just should have called it Spud. Vogel and Spud, I don't know. Some quite dark, you know, dark ideas in this, you know, this, you know, grave robbing and, you know, bodies being used for food and turning into Daleks and that sort of thing. And we'll, we'll see, uh, you know, the uh, the kind of the ultimate um, end product of that later on down the line. So here we are in Cara's office, uh, Eleanor Bron and Hugh Walters again. I suppose you could do like a, you know, tenuous link between uh, um, the last story, which Hugh Walters was also in. He played uh, once when he's playing Vogel. Um, he's going on about how he's the... Past months, triple double entry. But well, let's not go there. <clears throat> very kind of, you know, it's very kind of corporate, and uh, it's it's a very good kind of swipe at all this. Oh, very, yeah, very good. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's a very good swipe at you know, kind of commercial, you know, the commercial yuppie age of the eighties, you know, and it was all about big profits and big bucks, and uh, you know, bringing. You know, a pound for, you know, you'd sell your soul for a pound. And it, it's, you know, and it's like this, really, you know, it's just always about money on both sides, really. You know, Davos is, you know, greedy for the money and Kara's greedy to keep it. You know, she doesn't want to you know end up giving it all away. It's, um, it's, got, it's, it's got a nicely satirical edge, I think. <coughs> Excuse me. Of course, this was repeated in... Um, 1993, it was, yeah, March and April. Um, they did, um, because Doctor Who had been taken off the air for a few, you know, for indefinitely at that point. And the best they could come up with is, uh, was a repeat run. Um, some of which were chosen well, some not so much, I think. 1993, yes, this went out between um, 19th of March and the 9th of April 1993, it was repeated. It was cut up into four chunks because originally it was broadcast as a two-part. But they sold it abroad with um, some uh, rather dull cliffhangers for parts one and part three, where they could find the most convenient place to pause the action. But this, this was welcome because it wasn't available in video. And the previous two stories that they had repeated, Genesis of the Daleks and The Caves of Andrew's Army, I remember being really miffed by it because I had both of those on video. So I thought, well, why don't you repeat something like, you know, Seeds of Doom? That wasn't out on video. Or, you know, one of Amara Tales or, you know, um, you know, Planet of Fire even, you know, Resurrection of the Daleks. You know, I, I don't think that was out on video at that time. So I was delighted when there was a, you know, a Doctor Who story that I didn't own commercially. 
and I, I remember it, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. The, the days when I actually, um, you know, recorded everything on video, every, every Doctor Who story that was repeated, which wasn't, which wasn't much. Um, but yeah, I, I remember, yeah, I, I recorded this after the Demons because they repeated the Demons in November 1992. And I had this at the end of the, um, of the tape. It was one of those really long tapes where you could actually fit nine episodes on the whole cassette. <laughs> but you know, I kind of miss those days. I think it was kind of quite fun kind of looking forward to every new release. Whereas these days you've got Doctor Who at the press of a button. You can download it, you can buy it on DVD, Blu-ray, everything you could want. Pretty much every existing Doctor Who episode is there at the press of a button. But in those days you kind of had to wait and it was, I don't know, it was, it was kind of it was always something to look forward to a little bit. But, um, yeah, it, it's nothing like that these days. <laughs> yeah, I, if there is one complaint about Revelation of Daleks, and it is quite a valid one, is that the, um, the Doctor and Perry don't really feature in the action in the first part. You know, there's a couple of pre-filmed inserts, um, this time bickering about a broken fog watch or something um you know sort of going over a wall um but it's it's nothing really nothing really for them to get their teeth into and i i don't know i, I don't really know enough about the other you know what was going on behind the scenes but you know i, I think eric saywood i don't think he was especially enchanted with six doctor and I, I don't know whether, you know, this decision to actually, you know, keep him out of the action comparatively was, was deliberate or not. I don't, I don't know. Or, you know, or whether it was a deliberate thing after, you know, having taken on so much work recently in, um, during Time Lash, which they filmed back to that with a, with a pantomime that they were doing. So I don't know whether that was merely giving them a breather. I, I don't know. It's, it's not really something that I like to comment on because you know I wasn't a fly in the wall at the time but uh, who knows but yeah it, I'm, I'm not really sure keeping them out of the action really is really a good thing or not it's kind of like a Dr. Light episode before Dr. Light episodes became trendy you know they're you know they're ten a penny these days Fog watch. Yeah, he's he's his doctor is one of a select few that doesn't actually wear a watch. Um, I think he, he's um he's up there with William Hartnell, Tom Baker, apart from Revenge of the Sidemen, and there's a very brief glimpse in Revenge of the Sidemen, but apart from that, he doesn't wear one. Um but, 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 but David Tennant's doctor, I don't think does. Um I'm not sure whether Whitaker does or not, but uh, the others do, but uh, uh, yeah, Peter. No, Peter Davison for the most part doesn't. But he does in the Five Doctors' um, brief scene in front of us, I think. But uh, I've I've never worn one. I hate them. I've never understood the point of wearing a watch. I mean, you've got a clock, you've got a mobile phone. Why do Why do you need a flipping watch for God's sake? But um, no, I've, I've you know I've always been a watch refusenik. So um, it, it always amuses me when this doctor doesn't bother bother to wear a watch. <laughs> so we're leading up to what would have been um, 
the uh, the original repeat cliffhanger, which is Natasha and Grigory hiding from a Dalek, which, uh, well, well I, I suppose it's about as good as you can get, really. I, I don't, I think probably a better point to pause the action would have been Natasha finding Stengos' disembodied mutated head. That probably would have been better. But I don't know whether that would have been too far into part one. And you would have been you would have been left with a very short part two, probably. So I, th- I think this is probably the best place to pause it. The music for the Daleks, I think, is great. I think Roger Lim does a great job there. This kind of ow sort of noise, which is a lot, lot better than what Murray Gold does. Um yeah, don't don't get me started on Murray's pompous choir. For me, if you're gonna have a load of you know, goons screaming into the microphone while dialects are on the air. It just makes them look stupid. It just kind of reduces them to figures of fun, I think. Whereas this kind of music kind of underplays it a little bit more. And it's the same with Dudley Simpson in um, Genesis of the Dialects. You know, there's some really good music. Do I think the dialects are used too much in the modern series? I think they are. I think... It's kind of like a contractual obligation thing in that they have to have a Dalek story every season. Or at least they did, you know, in uh, in the noughties and the, uh, the, the early to mid-tens, I think. There would be a Dalek story. And I think they came back with varying degrees of success. I think Bad Wolf and Robert Schumann's Dalek two-parter, I think, to be very excellent. I think they are exactly what I want from a Dalek story. And I think after that, things start to get a bit tricky. Um, you know, for various reasons, the, the tenant dialect teapotters don't really work. You know, Stolen Earth, I think, especially is just ridiculous. It's just so overblown. It's, it's not not true. Um, and of course, they, they turn out to be easily defeated. Um, dialects of Manhattan and Evolution of Dialects Goblin won't, won't even go there. Army of Ghosts and Doomsday, I think, is... The problem is it's too much about Rose's departure or temporary departure from the show. Um, in the Matt Smith era, I mean, the Daleks are rubbish. They can't even fire at an old man for crying out loud. Um, and I think a common mistake that Moffat makes when writing Dalek stories is that um, it's all about the mechanics of the Daleks. There's too much navel-gazing about what makes a Dalek rather than um, actually showing them at their fire-spitting best. And they just turn out to be rubbish. Uh, unlike this moment now where um, Natasha is signing Stengel's head, which is absolutely revolting. <laughs> it is wonderful. Um, yeah, I mean, th- we ca- this story comes at the end of a story that is, has been, you know, it has been criticised in the past for being a little bit too violent and a little bit too near the knuckle. Um, but but the, this story is kind of like a last, you know, kind of two fingers up to those that criticised it because you've got everything in this, you know, you, apart from Stengus's head, you've got um, a very high body count. Practically everybody gets wiped out, apart from two guest characters. Um, you've got um, you've got all these dark themes of you know, um, you know, running for you know you, with the. Uh, with the body snatching and uh, just, you know, various lines which are quite dark. You've also got Davos's fingers being blown off. Um, 
stabbings, you know, you name it, it's it's in here. But yeah, the Stengel's head is. It never really bothered me when I was a kid, but now I'm older, I find it. <laughs> wonder how the hell did they get away with this? Uh, and it went out from what I remember at twenty past five on the Saturday evening, way before the watershed. How the hell did they get away with it? And you can see, oh, all these, all these organs on the outside. It looks like, you know, a, you know, brain matter, you know, just pulsating. They've executed it wonderfully well. They've done it really, really well. But it, it is a just horrible. <laughs> Did they go too far with the violence? Well, me personally, I mean, like I said in the previous podcast, I'm all for it. Because I think if you if you show violence, you should show it for what it is and that it hurts and that there are consequences to be had from it. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to ramble on about that again. But yeah, maybe maybe one or two things this season were a bit near the knuckle. I mean, I, I don't think you needed, in the two doctors, for example, I don't think you needed to show Shockeye biting a rat. And I don't think Oscar needed to be... Uh, Stabbed either. And it links the places really well. I mean, the whole thing is shot really well. With uh, with Roger Lim's music building up to a crescendo there and a slow close-up. You've got uh, comparing close-ups of Stengel's face, Natasha's horrified reaction. Um, Bridget, Lin Bridget Lynch Bloss, I think. Yeah, I think it's Bridget Lin Lynch Bloss, I think she's called. She acts it really well. It's, you know, this sort of panic and horror and fear. Yeah, it's it's a really good performance. And the other guy is really good, Stephen Flynn. Um, sadly passed away quite young, I think, 47, I think he was. Um, which is my age, which is awful, awful. Yeah, I think he had a brain tumour or something, I think. Um, Bridget Lynch Bloss, I think, I think she went on to be a jazz singer, I think. Eleanor Bronze still around, I think. And here we here we go with um, one of the best performances in the in the story. I think from William Gaunt has all seen him. I think I think it's a brilliant choice, and the, the choices that William Gaunt makes, I think, is uh, they are wonderful. I think the way he underplays. I think it would have been a it would have been a character that would be very easy to send up, you know, because he's this kind of self pitying, cynical, world weary kind of seen it all before hero. But he underplays it, and I think it's a wonderful choice to make. And I think the way he does it and the, the kind of a, the humour of the lines comes through that much more clearly, I think, than if he kind of overplayed it. And it all goes back to JNT's, oh, you know what, JNT was accused of stunt casting. And this is kind of like a prime example because there's so many familiar names in this at the time. You know, William Gort was in No Place Like Home, he'd been in Champions, Eleanor Bron. Very, very famous actress who'd been, you know, sort of review footlights, that sort of thing. Um, Alexi Sale, of course, in The Young Ones, and, you know, he was a comedian in his own right. Uh, Clive Swift, very familiar face. Um, even Jenny Thomason, you know, she'd been in Upstairs, Downstairs as Ruby the Maid. So it's bursting at the seams with all these familiar faces, but it works. It works really well. And I think that JNT. John Nathan said, I think he got, I think, it, I think it was unfair of him to get accused of stunt casting because I think nine times out of 10, the, the familiar face acting works really well. 
you know, think of later on, you know, you've got Nicholas Parsons and Curse of Fenric. That is a great performance. Um, even Ken Dodd in Delta and the Bannerman actually works in the context that it's in. And I think in hindsight, I think Bonnie Langford's Mel, I think she's actually a successful companion. You know, and I think at the time, I think it was very easy to kind of jump on that uh, that bandwagon saying, oh, no, no, J&T's doing this showbiz casting. But it works. And I think and I think he should have been applauded more for that because I, I think it's it's quite a risky move to make. But it was um, in the end, I, th I think it turned out to be a, a brave move. And I think it turned out to be a highly successful move as well. Because, you know, apart from, you know, Jenny Thompson, um but even even then, that, that could be deliberately, you know, playing it as a, you know, an incompetent. I don't know. Um, but apart from that, all all the guest cast in this are superb. It's one of the best, the most interesting guest cast that you've got in the entire history of Doctor Who. I think. Um, it's it's just every character comes to life perfectly. <coughs> Excuse me, too much coffee there. Too much ranting, actually. <laughs> And this is quite a long scene. It's quite a talky scene, you know, where, you know, they're going about Davos and, um, you know, the, the task that they're setting for scene and, and also Bostock. Um, another good actor, John Ogwen, who was in, I think, he was in a programme called The District Nurse, I think with Neris Hughes at the time. That was quite big in the mid-80s. So he was in that and he, he was another face I recognised at the time. But they're all, they're all excellent. And you, you need very good actors to bring this to life. Otherwise, yeah, the talkie scenes can fall a little bit flat. All the outside scenes, I think some of the outside scenes were actually filmed at Caution, which is where I, uh, where I studied journalism many moons ago. <clears throat> I, I, if I if I'd known at the time, I would have um, I would have gone round and uh, did the sightseeing tour. Said, "Oh, this is where they filmed Revelation of the Daleks," but I've, I've I've never done that. Paranoid speculation. He he does like his language, the Sixth Doctor. I remember one of the things that um, uh, reading an interview with Colin Baker, and he wanted to kind of explore the English language a lot more, come up with these quite, you know, sort of florid turns of phrase and, uh, you know, colourful language. And um, I, I think it's a shame that his doctor wasn't really given the chance to do that. I think at least, I think Colin's doctor should have been on TV for at least a couple more seasons, I think. But, um, you know, I, I think he's reached out to a whole new audience with, uh, with Big Finish, which I think has, has served him very well. I think, you know, um, it, it's wonderful that a whole new audience uh, are getting to know his doctor through Big Finish Adventures. This, this is a funny, this is a good little scene, actually, uh, where Clive Swift is uh, getting to be extremely pompous and... Uh, <laughs> Joe Bell is uh, he, he's the ultimate you know Jobsworth isn't he you know how he's giving this lengthy spiel about you know everybody must behave in you know uh, you know with with this VIP visit and uh, you know if, you know there'd be no swearing or picking of noses or 
you know, drinking or drugs or anything like that. And anybody that does will clean out the restrooms with a toothbrush. <laughs> it's wonderful. The, the, the dialogue is wonderful. I, I think this is probably, I think this is Eric Sayward's best work, I think. I think it's quite easy to criticise the work of Eric Sayward because, you know, it is quite sort of action-based and, you know, quite gung-ho with the action. But I must be honest, I, I, I do like his adventures. I think, you know, I'm, I'm, a, big, uh, I'm a big fan of all that, you know, sort of uh, thrills and spills and violence. Um, you know, stuff like Earthshot, Resurrection of Daleks, that sort of thing. Even Attack of the Cybermen, which was, you know, Eric Sayward by any other name. I enjoy all that. It's probably because I'm I'm just a big kid, really. Still haven't grown up. But I, I do think this is probably his best work. It's um because he's taking taking his writing into a into new dimensions, really. I mean he's he's retaining, you know, all the all the action and the uh and the adventure and the high body count and the violence and all that sort of thing. But he's using it with a you know, with a splash of, you know, dark humour, black humour, and it's um and it and it works really well. And some really unusual and interesting concepts. Um, and it's, it is it is a shame that um, the, the series was taken off the air for 18 months, because I, I think there, there could have been uh, more interesting avenues to explore. But we'll, we'll talk about that in the, uh, in the next part, I think. Very sophisticated looking box there. He's like one of those yuppie mobile phones they have at the time. <laughs> if, you know, if he gets out of the area, or you know, he, he can give him a call. <laughs> yeah, Roger Lim's music for this is uh, is excellent, and it's quite a marked contrast to the work he did in earlier stories. I think there are he scored. Stories like Time Flight, Mark of Infinity. And I, to be honest, I don't really think they work quite as well. I think then, you know, they're, they're perfectly pleasant to listen to, but they are a little bit generic. But I think what it comes down to, I think, is the choice of director. And I think clearly Graham Harper really pushed Roger Lynn to come up with some really good, interesting views for both this and A Case of Andrew's Army, which, uh, which he also did uh, the year before. And they work wonderfully well. So I think really when it comes down to it, I think it's the choice of director that can really have, make a difference as to whether you get a good or a bad score, incidental music score, in the mid-80s. And I'm judging from that, I think Ron Jones maybe, who directs both Time Flight and Arkham Infinity, maybe wasn't so interested in the music side of things. Uh, which is a shame, because I, I think, you know, you, you do need to bring the best out of your incidental music composer because it, you know it, it can make a you know quite a subtle difference to you know to the action unfolding on screen and i, I think this is a a, a wonderful score i, I, I really do <clears throat> davos here he's, he's quite interesting in davos in this he's a lot he's a lot more a lot more calculating a lot very sly for want of a better word it kind of goes back to the you know the davos of Genesis of the Daleks, when he was, you know, he's playing tricks, mind games with the likes of Garm and, 
and his followers, you know, with the, the power struggles. And he's, you know, he's doing the same with Tassie Beaker, who's, you know, her mind is quite malleable because, you know, she, you know, she doesn't come across as the, the sharpest tool in the box. But and, and he's deliberately playing on that and manipulating it and getting her to turn her, her turn her against Joe Bell and then, you know, and then later kill him. It's it's very clever. Very, very cleverly done. And I think Terry Malloy, I think, gives the the best performance here out of his three stories as that boss. You know, I think um, you know, a, a little bit of a critic. I, I think overall Terry Malloy, I think, is excellent as that boss. But I think there is a little bit of a tendency to kind of rant and gurgle and cackle, especially in the remembrance of the Daleks, I think. Would he again just be ahead? Oh, we're coming to the end of this episode already, then. The doctor's just sent, seen something that he really doesn't want to see. <laughs> this is just flying by. Natasha and Grigory being tortured. Well, Grigory's about to be tortured by too much booze. Eat your heart out, Phil Mitchell. Again, a very, very dark undercurrents running through this story. It's um, it, it is quite a dark story. But you know, like I've said before, you know, I, I don't think Doctor Who is is primarily a kid show. It was made by. You know the drama team. It, it wasn't made for children's BBC or anything like that. It was made to to be enjoyed by all the family. Um, uh, you know, and that includes older kids and you know teenagers and, and adults as well. And I think by all accounts, it was still getting quite healthy ratings. I think um, I think at this point, I think it was getting about seven million, which which in those days I think was was a very good score. It's certainly a lot better than um, what we get. Um, after, after it came back, after the uh, the 18 month hiatus, when it was only getting like three or four million, if that. And of course, a lot a lot more than we get nowadays. I mean, it's the show's lucky to attain two million, but then, you know, that's probably more down to viewing habits of these days. The landscape of the way we watch TV has, has changed so dramatically from 1985, which was still a traditional, you know, you have four, um, yeah, four channels to choose from because Channel 4. You know, being three years old at this point. Oh, <laughs> yeah, quite near the knuckle that bit. I wonder if Mary Whitehouse was still paying attention at this point. I don't, I don't remember seeing her name. Glenn Miller, we need more Glenn Miller. That, you know, I, I think it was, I, th I think, uh, I, I, I quite like the empty child of the Doctor dances, partly because of you know the Glenn Miller soundtrack. He can't beat a bit of Glenn Miller. So we're coming up to the cliffhanger, where for some reason um, the Doctor is staring mortality in the face here, because he's just found a gravestone with his with his face on it. Um, not particularly good likeness, but <laughs> I think the hair's a little bit too big. I think it's it's. The hair is a little bit too uh, bouffant, I think. It's more, it's more like Colin's hair in the uh, in the following season. JNT in the uh, the big hairy bits. I'm never really quite sure why he insisted that doctors have you know long hair. It was like you know Davison's hair in the uh, season twenty was practically shoulder length. 
And then, um, yeah, Colin's Baker, Colin Baker's hair would, you know, grow uh, quite dramatically in the following season. But um, yeah, he's he's here contemplating his his own mortality. Um, a little bit like they do in um, uh, the Matt Smith years with you know the trends and all this stuff. But, but, yeah, it's um, it's it's a good cliffhanger, I think. I think it's a shame that um, the the one thing you do lose with season twenty two is you know the traditional kind of four six part cliffhangers. So you only you know you only get one per story really, and and but the, this is a good one with the uh, with the statue falling on him, even though I think you can hear the squeak of a polystyrene now. <laughs> here he goes. Oh, if they film it, I I love the whites out here. Very good, very good. Yeah, that that electronic whiteout video effect I think is wonderful. It's a really really eerie final moment and the love. You know, a, a lovely final image, but you know, it's going to stick with the uh, very memorable final image, I think, for uh, for the you know that episode. That was great. I I really enjoyed that. Unfortunately, I'm uh, I've I've chosen two two stories that are that are among my favourites. You know, they'd easily be in my top thirty, I think. The Deadly Assassin, the Revelation of the Garments. But um, yeah, there's very little to uh, to criticise in this one. Still love this music. <laughs> so anyway, this is me signing off from part one of Revelation of the Daleks, John Montalia. Uh, hope to see, hope to hear you very soon, I should say. <laughs> but anyway, goodbye for now, and thank you for listening.